Noble Together is a podcast designed with you in mind, the parent who wants to partner in their child's education from the classroom to the car line. Our goal is to create conversations that provide shared vocabulary and strategies to help our children thrive. We could do this alone, or we can teach our children to be noble together. Welcome to episode four, Reading with Empathy. And first grade assistant teacher Stephanie Restivo joins us today to discuss chapter four of Michelle Borba's book on selfie. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Cassie. I'm just thrilled to have you here in my office today. I look up to you as a colleague and a wife and a mother. And one thing that I didn't include in my last episode's hints was that you give the very best hugs at just the right time. (laughs) I'm so grateful for you. You were one of four parents that faithfully attended our book club last school year, and we read aloud Sarah McKenzie's Read Aloud Family together every Thursday evening. And that really was the catalyst for moving to a podcast platform this year. As much as I enjoyed meeting with you in person and the other parents, we hope for a wider reach this year, which I hope is happening as parents are reading along with us at home. Parents, go ahead and grab your copy of Unselfie. Open up to chapter four. Now, this chapter dives into how parents can use books in the home to build a child's moral imagination. It's essentially our entire book club last year rolled into one chapter. Now, to kick things off, I went to the car line to hear from our parent community. I asked the question, what was your favorite childhood book? So before we listen, Mrs. Restivo. Yes. What was your favorite childhood book? I think when I look back, the one that stands out to me is Hiawatha. And I've seen it here at school. Yes. Yes. And I've read it to my class. And it's just a story that I remember my mom reading to us. And we'd sit on the bed and I loved the pictures and I loved little Hiawatha. Yes, I have seen that. I think I've read it. It might even be on my bookshelf. I'll have to dust it off and pull it out. All right, well, let's give a listen to our Carline question of the day. Hi, how are you? Good, I'm doing well. Um, I'm interviewing parents for our podcast. What is a childhood book that you remember enjoying as a young five, six, seven-year-old? What's the tough one? (laughs) Is Little Bear one? Yes. I think that was one of my books when I was a kid. That was one of my favorites. I think my favorite book as a child is um, The Giving Tree. I've just always loved it, the message behind it. I think the Nancy Drew mysteries. Me too. That was one of my favorites. (laughs) Of course, us girls. Great. I would have to say the boxcar children. The Harry Potter series, The Sorcerer's Stone. C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. The book I loved as a kid was uh, Bridge to Terabithia. We read Dr. Doolittle when I think I was in fifth grade, and I remember thinking it was like the coolest book ever. I love you forever. And do you read that to your children? Oh, all the time. Of course, right. And do you cry? Yes. <laughs> That was so fun. So what were what were some of your takeaways, Mrs. Restivo, as you were listening to parents share their favorite childhood book? How many of their favorites were on our reading list and how it takes a second when you first think about, hmm, what was that my favorite book? <laughs> 
I noticed that as well. The books that were listed that parents could recall, many of them are on our book list. And reading those alongside our children brings back that sentimental value from when we first experienced those texts ourselves as parents. And I think that's a really unique and very, very special part of our classical curriculum here at Arte. And speaking of family, Mrs. Restivo, can you share a little bit about your family, how you um, came to be a family unit, ages, stages of your your children? <laughs> well, I have five children. Um, all of them came to us through adoption. I grew up wanting eight children. And um, it was when I would be at a friend's house who had a big family, a lot of brothers and sisters, I loved the energy in their homes and I wanted that. So I married a man who's one of 10, thinking, oh, he'll be on board. <laughs> and then um, it, it just never happened for us. So um, yeah, my mom asked me one day about, did I want to be pregnant or did I want to be a mother? And I said I wanted to be a mother. So we started looking um, into adoption. And I never thought I'd have five kids because I never thought five people would give me babies. <laughs> but yes, so I am blessed. Thank you so much for sharing that, Mrs. Restivo. And they've come through the archway, your children? My third son started in third grade. And um, my second son was in 10th grade when we came here. So four of the five have gone to Great Heart Schools. That's amazing. And we are so grateful that Gilbert called you and your family here. You have been just a beautiful addition to our faculty. And we've just really appreciated all that you have deposited into our academy. You've been with us on staff for... This is my sixth year when my youngest started kinder. Okay, and then once your youngest started in kinder, you are freed up to join us full time. Yes. <laughs> That's just, it's really special to have families grow up and come through all the years here on the Archway side from kinder through fifth and then on to the prep. Thank you, Mrs. Restivo. Now, moving on, Borba in chapter four, she talks about cultivating a habit of reading for enjoyment in the home. What have you seen work well in this regard through different ages and stages and seasons, having littles? all the way through their teenage years. How do you help your children develop that habit of gravitating to texts and books on their shelves instead of maybe other modes of leisure? I think it is access. So we have a bookshelf in everybody's bedroom, including our own, and they're full of books. And we have, when they were younger, we had a bin in the car that had books. My kids still read in the car. When they were younger and there was timeout, there was books next to the timeout spot. If my kids needed to calm down, I would ask them to go and pick a book and they would sit and look from the time they were tiny. Yeah, and my husband and I do read and all of my kids are incredible readers. So yeah, we, we do read out loud as a family. We do uh, read nighttime, bedtime stories. So, yeah, it just all fits together. <laughs> Andrew Peterson says, if you want children to know the truth, tell them the truth. If you want them to love the truth, tell them a story. Are there stories that you find yourself coming back to in this pursuit of helping your children fall in love with truth or that you, as you have that bookshelf in your, in your home that your children have even gravitated back to 
throughout the years? This is a tough one. I am a lover of true life stories. So um, whether it be autobiographies, biographies, um, we read Lives of the Saints, um, true stories of people who, like Anne Frank, or Rosa Parks, or Ruby Bridges, the people who were children and went through the same things that, or the, the things in history that we really want the children to, to know about. Um, the real story of Christmas, or the real story of St. Nicholas, or things like that, that mm -hmm. those are the types of, of books I go back to, or use. What have you seen or noticed in your children's response to hearing those types of stories? Um, they grasp and accept things that are hard to understand. I think knowing that a person lived through that and it helps make it real and um, it never seems to be too much. Never seem, you know, some of those topics are scary. And I think it's more of a respect that it brings rather than fear. Yeah. And some of those concepts are inaccessible sometimes, somewhat in this day and age. And it's one thing, I know Borba speaks to this and Sarah McKenzie as well, using a story and then lecturing upon that thing that we would hope our children would learn or for them to digest that, to learn that empathy can't always be forced. There's something different about reading a story versus a lecture or a lesson that does something different for their soul. So thank you for sharing those titles with us, those ideas for, for those parents that are listening. Now you recently led an initiative here at school. It's ongoing. It's quite similar to the anecdote that Borba shares at the start of this chapter, the kindness momentum that she speaks about. Uh, can you share with us a little bit about what that initiative has looked like here on campus? So last year I had a virtue club and um, I wanted the children who were part of the club to be looking for virtue in others. So we as a club gave the teachers like stickers to put up on the virtue board in the NPR. And the children were the ones who sought out the acts of virtue, not the teachers. The teachers just assisted in putting up the stickers. And they sought out acts of virtue in each in other? In each other, yes. So it was very interesting to see what the children were looking for and, mm -hmm. and how <laughs> hard they were on each other. <laughs> What do you mean by that? They had a hard time finding oh. virtue. I think they were looking for perfection yes. instead of, mm. you know, little acts that we yeah. do and that it doesn't mean the person is perfect or doesn't make mistakes. Moments of virtue. Moments of virtue, yes. So this year with our, um, our new thematic goal, um, we turned that board into the Be Good to Each Other and Noble Together. So each child in the whole school, we're hoping to see up on that virtue board. And the fact that they are practicing virtue, and it really is a practice. We are allowed to make mistakes, we do make mistakes, but we also can make good choices. Mm -hmm. And so 
each child will hopefully be up there. And mm, I love that. Thank you. And and we are well on our way. That tree, we've had to uh, create more branches. And I think the leaves last I checked are overflowing onto the wall above and below the bulletin board. So that that is definitely a work in progress. And believe it or not, there's a second initiative. You do so much here. It just proves how virtuous you are as this is on your mind continually. Tell us a little bit about the classroom blessings, uh, the random acts of kindness. That's another initiative that you started here this year. Okay, so each classroom this year will bless another classroom with a surprise. So that could be a surprise popsicle party. Um, it could be a gift on every student's desk when they walk in, in the, from recess or in the morning. It could be a book that has been gifted to that classroom from another classroom. So each classroom will take the opportunity to gift a classroom and each classroom will receive a gift so that we are spreading kindness around the school. And there's a secret element to this, correct? Yes, they, we do not tell who we've gifted who it's from. So we're looking for a little act of humility in that mm -hmm. we will not be getting any, um, anything in return. It is just the act of giving. And has your class done this? Yes, we started it Aww. because it was my idea. <laughs> And what was the response of your students? It was, it was great. They were so excited and they never once asked, why didn't we get anything or why, is it our turn yet? Or we, they haven't asked at all yet. So I do think that they loved giving. Aw, that I love. And your class has not been gifted yet, correct? We have not received not yet. yet. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Mrs. Restivo, this next question, and I, I asked you to co-host this particular podcast with me because when I think about this balance of having those books available and then also having a little bit of structure surrounding it and then not forcing it upon our children but helping them develop the appetite for it to crave those books, if you could go back to the very start, what would you recommend to the young, busy parent right now listening Maybe they're just starting out on their read aloud journey with their own children. What would you tell yourself if you could go back 20 years? Well, first of all, I would say that I always was afraid I was boring. That I was, you know, a lot of, I saw a lot of families running from activity to activity. I have some friends who do not like to sit still. And I was afraid, oh my gosh, am I being too boring? Is, is this enough? So I would tell myself now, all these years later, relax, you're on the right track. <laughs> um, I did purposely strive for calm. So I would say books happen to pick me. So trust, if you go to a bookstore, if you go to a library and something jumps out at you, trust it. I had, I read books I had never heard of. The Trumpet of the Swan, I had never heard of. Narnia, I heard somebody who was a homeschooler talking about. I didn't even know what that word Narnia meant. And we read the entire series together out loud as a family. And my husband was sitting there with us. It was, it was great. 
the Little House on the Prairie books, I have my I have four boys, and so I thought, oh, is this girly? No, they loved them, and I would say to let it evolve into something that works for you. I would read to my kids when they ate. I had a captive audience. They were sitting there at the table. Um, and I'm not a breakfast eater, so I could easily just sit and read while they ate breakfast. Uh, my kids were big Lego kids. When they were really little, I would read while they played Legos. I never asked them to sit. And I have to tell you that that was my instinct. I wanted to say, sit down, I'm reading. But they were able to listen. And I sometimes wonder if that is why they're such good readers, because they were listening while they were doing something else. I really don't know if that has anything to do with it, but they're just, they are all such good readers. So yeah, I would say to let it evolve into something that works for your family. I love that. Thank you so much. Uh, you, you frame that in a way that offers a lot of freedom and just enough encouragement to get started. I especially appreciated that you said you were afraid that you would be boring. Uh, I can relate to that. I remember reading aloud Little Women to my children. And at that time, I think they were maybe 12 and 13, my daughter and my son. And I had the same thought. My son's not going to be into this. Uh, it's about little women. But he enjoyed it just as much as my daughter. They said they like hearing my voice at night. They like falling asleep to that. And I think it may have been more about the moment together as a family, just as much as the plot and the storyline and the characters, which were engaging as well. But that memory that's created when we're gathered together, that's something else that we're offering our children. And uh, sometimes we forget that it's the simple things, right, that they remember. Can you capture for us in one short sentence, how do we define classical literature? How would you define classical literature? Something that stood the test of time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, um, you know, I always think of it in as, as opposed to pop culture. Although my kids will go to the library and they want to read Bad Kitty or Captain Underpants, and I tend to want to say, pick something better. I let them pick what they want to pick and they all usually get a whole stack of books, so there's good in there too. <laughs> yes. But um, yeah, so I guess I think of classical literature as things that have stood the test of time. You don't have to read between the lines to know that books make our kids better. A study out of Carnegie Mellon University found that reading a story gives the brain a similar network connection as actually living through an experience yourself. Stories like A Long Walk to Water and Johnny Tremaine speak to our children's hearts deeper than any lecture ever could. Sarah McKenzie wrote in her book, The Read Aloud Family, our book club book last year, and one that I can't recommend enough. She said, quote, when we read aloud, we give our kids practice living as heroes, practice dealing with life and death situations, practice living with virtues, practice failing at virtue. As the characters in our favorite books struggle through hardship, we struggle with them. We consider whether we would be as brave, as bold, as fully human as our favorite heroes. And then we grasp on a deeper, more meaningful level, the story we are living ourselves as well as the kind of character we will become as that story unfolds, 
end quote. Not only does reading increase empathy, it has the potential to pave the way for future success, academically and beyond. Borba shares some statistics on page 75, quote, reading level at age seven can be an important indicator of one's future socioeconomic status. And reading for pleasure at age 15 can be an important indicator of the future success of the child, end quote. Borba recommends getting a copy of the Read Aloud Handbook by Jim Trelease. There is a study cited in that book by the 1985 Commission on Reading that stated, the single most important activity for building the knowledge required for eventual success in reading is reading aloud to children. Sarah McKenzie argues that there are three main benefits to reading aloud to children. Firstly, Reading aloud to children increases their vocabulary and highly sophisticated language patterns. Our everyday speech patterns are nowhere near the level of syntax that Louisa May Alcott or C.S. Lewis script in their books. She says, quote, hearing words that don't ordinarily come up in a round of conversation expands a child's vocabulary faster and better than anything else, end quote. Secondly, reading aloud enhances children's ability to make connections or what we would call comprehension skills. Mackenzie says, quote, when we do the heavy lifting of decoding sounds and interpreting rhythm and vocal cues, children are freed up to fall in love with story. The listening child gets to spend her mental energy in a different way. And finally, reading aloud helps them simply fall in love with story, especially when stories are read aloud with feeling and inflection and pauses at just the right time. It's this time together on the couch, snuggled up in bed, or even listening to an audiobook in the car together that our children remember. And yes, audiobooks do count. I remember listening to Flora and Ulysses by Kate DiCamillo with my children to and from school for a few weeks, and our catchphrase for a time became, this malfeasance must be stopped. We also listened to Echo by Pam Muniz Ryan prior to visiting Bainbridge Island Japanese American Exclusion Memorial in Washington State. Each year I try to read one of my favorite Christmas books, The Ginger Bear's First Christmas Aloud. That was a book that my third grade teacher gifted me and one I still treasure today. And I'm still working my way through reading aloud the unabridged version of Little Women to my teenagers to be continued. Now for the sneak peek into next episode's guest. I will share a few hints to leave you guessing. Her first language was Serbian. She is always reading, and she recently married her high school sweetheart and is soon to be married to him again. Interesting. I want to give a special thank you to the Archway Arate parent community for embracing this podcast and participating in our curbside questions. I also want to give a big shout out to my editor and producer, Joe Mason. I for sure couldn't be doing this without you. I look forward to connecting again as we talk about chapter five of Unselfie with our special guest. If you'd like to take this connection further, please leave a comment, a question, or idea in the survey attached here to the show notes. I'll send you a copy of Sarah McKenzie's Read Aloud Family to the first three people who respond to that survey. I would so love to hear from you. Until next time, keep working to build connections with your kids one conversation at a time.